Well, friends, it's a joy to be in the Lord's house with you this morning. Uh, he has promised uh, through his scriptures that he will be in his house and with his people, and so we trust that uh, that, that is taking place even as we're sitting here, uh, knowing that as we come in, we come in with a lot of sadness, we come with a lot of joy and a lot of grief, a lot of celebration. Um, all of what's going on, we know that uh, we can come and bring those things to the Lord. And so this morning, as we continue our um, series in the Apostles' Creed, which we just confessed together, uh, we are looking at the Apostles' Creed as one of the church's uh, most ancient documents. Uh, came to us around the second or third century, we believe. And uh, kind of all throughout uh, church history and all throughout denominational lines, uh, churches have stacked hands on this document to say that this is one of the more succinct yet uh, robust uh, theological uh, declarations that the church has, uh, that it's true to what scripture says, uh, it's true in its tone, it's pastoral in its tone, um, and what it teaches is uh, such a robust summary of what the Bible says. And so we know that uh, the creed doesn't have any authority, and so we don't preach the creed, but we know that uh, scripture does. And so we look at what the creed says, and then we look at scripture to say, uh, do these things line up? And so uh, this morning, we're gonna be at the portion of the creed where the drafters of the creed, and as we just confessed together, uh, say that we believe in Jesus who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, buried, and descended into hell. So it's gonna be a long sermon. Uh, it's the central portion of the creed uh, because it's central to Christianity. Uh, we would say it's even central to uh, the history of the world, uh, that what we're confessing to believe is that we believe that Jesus Christ uh, was a real man uh, who was also fully God, who lived at a particular time in history uh, and experienced uh, death on a cross, uh, was dead, and was buried. And it, is, uh, and it is what makes us right with God. Uh, Christianity would look at the crucifixion and the death of Jesus and say, that is how you're made right with God, which is some of the best and probably some of the weirdest news uh, that's ever been given. And because Christ's suffering and dying as our substitute uh, is the best and the weirdest news ever given, believers can trust and believers can enter into their world uh, with this great hope. So there's gonna be a couple of things we'll see in this passage. We'll be in 1 Corinthians uh, I think we're in verse 21 through 24. I should know this. I feel like I wrote it. I think that's where we are. So if there's something different on the screen, just pick it up in 21. Uh, let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. If you have a copy of the scriptures, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 through 24. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Let's pray together. Lord, this morning as we uh, open your scriptures, as we look at uh, what you have for us, uh, would you be so kind as to uh, focus my distracted heart? Uh, would you be so kind as to soften uh, my grumpy heart, uh, that we can, uh, as your people, uh, dive into what you have for us this morning. So Jesus, would you be close to us? Uh, would you be the one who comforts us? Holy Spirit, uh, would you draw sinners to yourself? Uh, and God, would you receive them gladly? Uh, in your name we do pray, amen. So there's two things we're gonna see in this passage, that Christ's death is historical and that Christ's death is humble. Uh, so let's dive into this great hope, looking at this passage in 1 Corinthians. 
where Paul is outlining something for us here in verse 21 and 22. And what Paul is outlining for us is this, uh, just as the incarnation, just as the birth of Jesus uh, in the manner in which Jesus was born, as we spoke about last week, um, just in that fashion, the crucifixion of Jesus is a very strange way uh, to save God's people. It's a very strange way to save the world. Paul's telling us here, and to the world, it's going to look pretty foolish that preaching the cross of Christ is the method through which God has ordained for the world to hear uh, this gospel. And so when the drafters of the creed wanted Christians for uh, the next 2,000 years or where we are now and even beyond that's gonna outlast us long after we're gone, really until Jesus comes back, the drafters of the creed wanted Christians to confess that Jesus was a real person who was really God, who really lived during a particular time in history. And this is why the drafters of the creed confessed uh, that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Uh, It wasn't that Pilate was a dude who had a lot of power. It wasn't that Pilate was a guy who was very influential. Uh, Pilate was just a dude. Uh, He was sort of this toady for the Roman government. Um, He didn't didn't do much, he didn't say much. Uh, But what the drafters of the creed wanted us to know as we see is that Uh, Pilate, uh, we can look back in the history books, we can look at Snopes.com, we can fact check, we can look and see that Jesus lived during the time of Pontius Pilate, that Pontius Pilate was a real Roman governor who uh, presided over the area in which Jesus lived, who worked for the Roman emperor. Again, Pilate wasn't special, he was just a dude. You can read his accounts in the Gospels when you get home that Pilate was, was really a propped up ruler who didn't really care about Jesus. Um, he was wishy-washy. Uh, he didn't want to kill Jesus because as he questioned Jesus, he didn't see Jesus really as a threat uh, and he didn't really see Jesus even as doing anything that wrong. Uh, and so when he questioned Jesus, he was like, I don't know if I want to kill him, but it seems like these people really want to kill him. So he just sort of did what the crowd did because Pilate, above anything else, uh, he just wanted to be left alone. Uh, Pilate wanted to be left alone. Uh, He wanted peace, he wanted quiet throughout his little part of the kingdom, throughout his little part of the Roman Empire. And so when Jesus was sort of messing that up a little bit, Pilate, again, who uh, he wouldn't have cared about Jesus, he wouldn't have believed that Jesus was the king because for Pilate, like power was really important. Pilate was a guy who was trying to climb the corporate ladder. Pilate was a guy who wanted to be in the emperor's good graces. Pilate wanted more people to rule over. He wanted more land to rule over. And so um, Jesus coming to him as the king of the Jews who comes as like, he's a prisoner and all these people are saying to kill him. Pilate wouldn't have cared about Jesus. He wouldn't, he would have been, he would have been really apathetic toward him because he, would have, he kind of would have had pity on him. Like Jesus is, he's supposed to be a king, but all these people are yelling at him. Like Pilate wouldn't have been impressed with Jesus. Uh, Jesus was weak to him. And Paul in this passage in 1 Corinthians, while discussing the foolishness of the cross, is saying that it is foolishness to the Greeks because much like Pilate, who was a Roman, Pilate, uh, rather the Greeks, would have never believed that anyone who claimed to be God would have suffered in the way that Jesus did. Uh, they were, they, they, what the Greeks thought about God, uh, when they thought about gods, little g, the Greeks, gods were apathetic to the Greeks. Uh, gods, they didn't feel anything. Gods just ruled. 
Uh, they made lightning or whatever, but they just kind of ruled. They didn't get involved with their creation. They didn't show emotion. They weren't relatable. So to the Greeks, it wasn't really intellectually appealing or stimulating uh, that Jesus claimed to be God because his life would have proved otherwise. That Jesus, who's claiming to be God, would, would become a man and dwell among his creation to try to reconcile them to, to himself, to buy back the creation that he loved and gave his life as a ransom for, that would have been absurd to the Greeks. Uh, it was podunk, it was backwoods thinking, it was really beneath them. The Greeks, what they cared about was wisdom and the Greeks cared about knowledge. And what Paul was coming up against, uh, sort of in seed form, that was really budding into uh, like full bloom at the time that the creed was written, uh, was this ancient heresy called Gnosticism. Um, and painting with a very broad brush, because I'm not a philosopher, um, don't claim to be, but painting with a very broad brush, what Gnosticism is, is a, it's a secret knowledge, that's kind of the literal meaning of the word, that there is a secret knowledge that can be attained, and if I can attain that secret knowledge, then I can have freedom. And my friend Les says that if you squeeze American Christianity, what drips out is Gnosticism. It's this understanding that if I can just learn a little more, then I can really be free. That's what sets me above them. That if I know more, if I learn more, if I can just dive into my Enneagram type a little more, if I can throw some more money at counseling, if I can just learn some more about myself, then I can be free. And look, Enneagram's fine, counseling's fine. But Jesus is coming and saying that there is no secret knowledge outside of him and the Greeks would have never believed this. This is what Paul is up against. They look at uh, what they're trying to attain, which is all the wisdom and all the knowledge that they can get. And then they'll be free. Y'all, welcome to Nashville, right? That if we can just learn more if I can just learn more, we got Vanderbilt down the road, we got Belmont five feet away. If I can just learn some more, then I'll have freedom. If I'm a little more woke than you, then I'll have freedom. And you're the one that's wrong. All right, this is what the Greeks would have believed. The crucifixion of Jesus would have been absurd to them because they would have said salvation's not obtained through Jesus, it's obtained through self-actualization. That if I dive deeply enough into my story, then I can find my freedom. The Greeks were far too prideful to ever believe that God would become a man. It's the other part of Gnosticism. They only cared about the spiritual. They didn't care about the material. So they would have been fine with Jesus saying he was God because that's kind of cool to them and interesting. But that God would become a man didn't make any sense because the world doesn't matter. That matter doesn't matter. That would have been what these Greeks would have been into. But Paul comes in and says, here's the deal. It's gonna sound foolish to you, Greeks, because what you're looking for can only actually be found in Jesus. That true wisdom starts with Jesus. Scripture even tells us that. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Everything that the Greeks were looking for was in Jesus. They were just too blind to see it. But Paul also says that it wasn't just the Greeks who were tripped up that Jesus wouldn't suffer the way that he did. He's also saying uh, that the Jews were kind of in that same boat. Uh, he says here that the crucifixion, the cross of Christ, 
Christ crucified as a stumbling block to the Jews because the Jews would also have never believed that their Messiah would suffer. Why would he? Why would the Messiah suffer? He was the anointed one who was gonna come and set captives free. He was gonna upend the Roman government. He wouldn't certainly let the Roman government kill him. He was here to kick butt. He was here to take names. He was here to restore Israel to prominence and all the other nations would come to Israel for advice on how to be a great nation. They would have signed up for their online course about how to be a really good nation. This is what Israel wanted. This is what Israel believed that the Messiah was gonna bring to them. And Paul is saying this is what stumbled them up because for the Jews, they wanted power. They just wanted to be in charge. They wanted power and they wanted Jesus to do something cool. They wanted a sign, Paul says, that, that the Jews demanded signs. We see this in John 6 uh, when they came up to Jesus and said, what sign do you do that we may believe in you? God, I'll believe in you if you give me something supernatural. If you give me some supernatural evidence that you exist. If you do something cool, if you do something interesting, if you do a magic trick, this is what Herod did when he interrogated Jesus, right? Do something then. And Jesus didn't do it. The Jews always wanted some sort of sign, some sort of thing that they could grasp their hands around that wasn't just trusting in Jesus, but they could point to and say, oh, I'll believe in him now because he did this. Uh, I just turned 40, which is why my back hurts all the time. (laughs) And about 20 years ago, I was like brand new to Christianity and uh, I was at this summer discipleship program and uh, there was a girl there who I thought was pretty. And I was like, I think I'll ask her on a date. She was like a super Christian. And so I was like, I was a little intimidated because she seemed like she knew what she was talking about. She knew all the language. I didn't know like what Christian, I was like, Christians, y'all talk funny. Um, her name is Laura. And so I went to her and I was like, hey, we're talking Laura. I didn't say that out loud. Um, but I was like, hey, Laura, I would like to go on a date with you. And she said, well, let me pray about it. And I was like, probably should have been a good indication where this was headed. Um, And she came back like 45 minutes later. And I was like, that was a a long time to pray. Um, And so she came back like 45 minutes later. She's like, I can't go on a date with you. And I was like, that's cool, I guess. Why? Can you give me a reason? Um, And she said, well, while I was praying, I prayed that God, if he wanted me to go on a date with you, would turn the sky red and green. And he didn't do it. So I can't go on a date with you. And I was like, do I need to be pissed at you or do I need to be pissed at God? Who am I supposed to be mad at here? Because this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Like, I've been a Christian for five minutes and you're coming to me with this nonsense? Like, and while that story is ridiculous, right? The Jews were like this and we're like this a little bit. Jesus, give me something. Show me something. Give me something I can grasp my hands around that if I can just get you on my side, then, then I'll believe you. If it's, if it's like being woke for the Greeks, this is Christian nationalism for the Jews, right? Give me something, show the power, show the power, and then I'll come and follow you. If I can get you on my side, Jesus, and you can prove that I was right all along. And then Paul comes in with verse 23 to say, Jews and Greeks, you're both wrong. You're both wrong, that there's actually a third way, and it's the cross of Christ, that we preach Christ crucified. We preach the truth and the good news of the gospel because Jews and Greeks and all of us here need to hear 
the good news of the gospel. And what makes this offensive, what makes this offensive to a Greek, what made it offensive to the Jews is that when Jesus came and died on the cross, what he was saying here is that your lives are lived in a direct rebellion of God and you need to repent. Your life is in direct disobedience and direct defiance of the laws and the statutes of God and you need to repent. Because the original design for mankind was to live in this glorious and beautiful communion with God, walking with him in the garden in the cool of the day, conversing with him and living under his wisdom, living under his love and under his smile for eternity, that we were given this garden to live in, to keep and to tend and to develop and to create and multiply and subdue and to have dominion over the earth. To be a living earthly representation of what happens in heaven in every moment of forever. That you are the crown jewel of God's creation. That when God created the sky and the sea and the land and the birds of the, of the air and the beasts of the field, whenever he created all those things, at the end of the day, he said it was good, but when he created man, he said it's very good. That you were the one that, Jesus, that God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit looked at and said, this is very good. This is the crown jewel of my creation. I'm gonna share with them something that's not been shared with any part of my creation, that they are made in my image and that they can have the communion that we have. And then as we know, Adam and Eve uh, sinned and it all went sideways from there. And then there's this white, hot, holy hatred that burns for sin that God has towards sin. And it has to be dealt with because he's a God of justice and he wrote the rule book and he demands the rules and he demands holiness. And he says, I know that my people can't fulfill this so I'm gonna fulfill it myself. I'm gonna send my son Jesus and he will die, but he won't be what you're expecting. When he comes to earth, Greeks, when he comes to earth, Jews, he's not gonna be what you're expecting. He's gonna be better than that. He's gonna be a more true version of that, better than what you could ever drum up because the world isn't gonna be transformed and changed and saved, Greeks, through just obtaining more knowledge. Jews, the world's not gonna be changed and saved and transformed and made right by power. If those things worked, they would have worked already. But Jesus is coming and saying that it's more than a secret knowledge like the Greeks demand and it's not gonna come through power like the Jews demand that when God is coming to save the world, he's, he's coming to save the world through Jesus and through humility. That he's gonna be humble that he's not gonna count equality with God something to be grasped, but he's gonna humble himself. So Christ's death is historical, the creed wants us to see it, but it also wants us to see that Christ's death is humble, which is our last point this morning. If we look at what uh, Paul says in verse 24 here, we'll start with 23 actually. But we preach Christ crucified as stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Paul is telling us here what we see in scripture, what we see in the person of Jesus is that he's the only one who was unstained by sin and therefore he's the only one who could hold absolute power and divine wisdom at the same time. He's the only one who could hold these both in harmony and not let them corrupt him. Paul said it's folly to those because it's crazy to see how Jesus lived among us and how Jesus relates to us and how Jesus humbled himself to death, even death on a cross, and that his death was the ultimate humiliation. 
And what took place on the cross, as we know in the crucifixion narratives in the gospel, is that whenever Christ was dying, that darkness, a deep darkness descended on the earth, the gospel writers tell us. A deep darkness descended on the earth because man couldn't see what was going on between God and Jesus at this moment. This is the portion of the creed where we say he descended into hell, which is a weird thing to confess and it's a weird thing to think about, but it's really, it's really not that hard. Yes, it is. What am I talking about? <laughs> it is hard. When we say that, what we want to think is that Jesus dropped into the hell that we've seen on the cartoons, right? Lake of fire, devil with a pitchfork, bunch of lawyers there. Like, that's what we think is gonna happen. But what we see on the cross is that Jesus, as he is in, uh, in a dialogue with God, he screams out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God didn't answer him. And the drafters of the creed are saying, when we say he descended into hell, that's what we mean. That it wasn't the place, the literal hell that we know of, the literal hell that we believe in and actually preach. The place of evil and torment, that's not what the drafters are saying. They're saying when he descended into hell, it's because he cried out to his God, his father, and he didn't answer him. And this has never happened before. That all the hatred that God has towards sin, all the weight of sin, all the weight of being the sacrifice, of all the weight of being the substitute on our behalf had fallen on his shoulders, and that was hell. We'd say he descended into hell and we take the spiritual reformed approach, one, because that's the kind of pastor I am, two, that's the Midtown espouses to the creed. Uh, but we also know that it wasn't a literal hell that we speak of um, that he descended into for a few reasons. One, that when Jesus was on the cross, he's hung between two criminals. One's mocking him. The other criminal says, remember me this day. And Jesus says, I, I tell you on this very day, you will be with me in paradise, and Jesus wouldn't have been in both places. He certainly wouldn't have lied to this criminal. So we understand that when Jesus died, that's where he was. Um, also on the cross, he said, Father, it is finished, and into your hands I commit my spirit, which meant that his suffering had ended, the penalty had been paid. And so going to hell would have meant there had been further penalty to pay, and that's just not true. It's not, it's not fidelity to the scripture, so it's not biblically accurate. And so when we look at those things and see that there was no more suffering to endure in hell, we can look and take the reformed spiritual option that he experienced hell on the cross when the torment of that eternal wrath and the weight of that sin fell upon him in those hours of darkness. And that's supposed to comfort us somehow. And it comforts us this way, that when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he didn't get an answer back we will never have to know what that's like. That that was what hell was for Jesus. Listen to what John Calvin says about this. That there is nothing like crying out to God and hearing nothing back. Surely no more terrible abyss can be conceived than to feel yourself forsaken and estranged from God when you call on him and not be heard. There's no more terrible abyss can be conceived than to feel yourself forsaken and estranged from God when you call upon him and not be heard. Calvin is saying there's nothing like crying out to God and hearing nothing back, and you know that. You know what that feels like. 
I don't have to illustrate for you that when you're pleading and crying and begging for God to move and nothing happens and it appears he has left the building, you know the heaviness of that. But you know that God's gonna give you an answer. It might be no, it might be wait. It could be a thousand things. But we know that he hears us because we know that there was only one time when God didn't and it was this moment. Uh, I have a two-year-old son, his name's Fuller. If you wanna babysit him, let me know. Uh, he's wonderful. Um, but when my wife and I were, uh, were trying for a baby, uh, there was 19 months that we tried and nothing happened. Um, and it was awful. It was praying every month. Well, first of all, I thought that an egg dropped every day, like a chicken. This apparently isn't a thing. <laughs> apparently you get one shot a month. Thanks, public school. Um, but what we know is that Man, it was so, it was so hard. It was so hard sitting there and praying. <laughs> I lost them. I lost them. You're too funny, Daryl. Too funny. Um, that praying so, just so hard and so diligently for something we wanted so badly. And my wife, every month, this just not happening again and not happening again. And I'm like, why is this so hard? Like, why is this so difficult? My parents did this in the back of a car. Like, teenagers do this. Why is this so hard? And just feeling rejected and that God wasn't listening. And he finally gave us Fuller, which is amazing. But we know that that's not everybody's story. But when we look at Jesus, we know that it wasn't because he's not there. He is promising us through this act that it's not because he's not there that your prayers aren't getting answered in the way that you want. That Jesus can empathize with us. That's what the crucifixion means. That's what the crucifixion is. That we don't have a Jesus who's a robot, that we have a Jesus who says, I know what it's like. I know what it's like. I know what it's like to have friends bail on you I know the isolation, I know poverty, I know sadness, I know loneliness, I know dashed hopes. I know it because I've sat through it and Jesus is saying, I'm sitting with you as you're sitting through it. I've not left you alone because my father left me alone. And you'll never know what that feels like because I heard the deafening silence of God. That Christianity is different because it takes suffering and it turns it into something that can be used by God for his glory. This is what the Greeks and the Jews would have never understood. And Jesus is coming and saying that even when the devil is accusing you, this is why the devil is such a turd because sometimes when he accuses us, he's right. We do terrible things. If it was tossed up on these screens, we would be mortified what we did, even last night, even this morning. But Jesus is coming and saying, loud may the accuser roar, as the old hymn says, of sins that I have done, but I know them all and a thousand more, but Jehovah knows none. That Jesus has taken these sins and he's tossed them as far as the east is from the west. He's tossed them into the depths of the sea and they will be remembered no more. That Jesus takes your sin on the cross when he is in that moment of darkness with his father. He takes the, the cloak of sin that's on your hunched shoulders and he puts it on himself and he takes his robe of righteousness and his robe of sonship and he puts it on you and he says, you'll never be separated from my father again. This is what the cross is offering us. That's the Jesus that we believe in. That's why when we look at this cross, not this one, this one, this one on there, it's a replica. That when we look at the cross, what Jesus is saying is we're not looking at the cross. The Bible's not saying look at this cross and see how good Jesus was. And then go love people like he did. 
That's certainly not wrong, but it's not the point of the crucifixion. Because you can throw any one of us up on that cross and we're still going to hell because you can't pay for my sins. And I can't atone for your sins. What can only atone for our sins is the blood of Jesus who died as our substitute. That the cross isn't just an example of how to live like a good, kind life. The cross is a a tool of execution that the most perfect man who ever lived in history died upon a cross. It's either the best news in the world or it's the worst news of the world. And the thing with Christianity is that it's both. It's the best thing that ever happened that Jesus died on the cross. It's also the worst thing that ever happened that Jesus died on the cross. I believe in Jesus Christ who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, buried, and descended into hell. Let's pray together. Jesus, we know that your spirit's moving. Holy Spirit, we know that uh, you are turning hearts to yourself. We know that you are turning hearts to Jesus, pointing to Jesus as the one who uh, was a ransom for us. All the things that we believe about the crucifixion. Uh, So Jesus, uh, God the Father, Holy Spirit, uh, would you protect us from the evil one who wants to keep us from that? Uh, Would you draw sinners to yourself? Would you call sinners to repentance of which I am the worst? of which their pastor's the foremost. But Jesus, would you call us to yourselves as we sing these next couple songs, as we leave here, that we would leave here rejoicing because of all the great things that you've done. And it's in your name we do pray, amen.